Hello? Okay. Yes, a long way from Warwick in whiteout conditions on Route 4 here on Palm Sunday. It's early this year, right? And uh, Pastor Rich, I can tell you, the reason you had the Coast Guard escort is ever since one of those ferry boats got sliced in half in the last Spider-Man movie, they've really been cracking down on security. You know? <laughs> they seemed it was a good precaution. They didn't want to lose another one. Iron Man might not always be there to help out. So happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Everybody give somebody near you a high five. See what I did there. Slap those palms. Now, now everybody look at the camera and wave your palms at Norman if he's watching at home. Very good. All right, so those, those are two of my palm-related jokes. It's not a lot. Here's one. How do, you, uh, how do you get your dishes clean the week before Easter? Sunday before Easter? Palm off. I'm sorry about that. That's all I got. But... So uh, I've got some palm leaves here, and we're going to talk about palm leaves. We have these from our, our Sunday school. Whoop, there we go. And uh, the poor tree has just been stripped, the one we got out there. <laughs> Paula's like, I'll cut two for you. I'm like, we cut one last week for the kids. We cut one. It's not going to have much left, but they grow back. Right? So uh, I wanted to bring a donkey, but the, the logistics were a bit much. And, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone's allergic to donkeys, so I figured I'd better just go with the palm leaves. One good thing about teaching on Palm Sunday is that my topic was pretty easy to pick. And for me, that's one of the hardest things to do when I get up here to share is to pick topics. Uh, on the other hand, it's challenging to teach something that's so familiar to many of us, right? Uh, besides the events of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, there aren't a lot of passages in the Bible that I think we're really more familiar with than this one. You know, we have uh, some of the classic you know, Old Testament uh, accounts, Noah and the Ark, David and Goliath, Moses and the Exodus from Egypt, some of Jesus' miracles, and, and I think Palm Sunday is right there in that category, is things that we're, we're kind of, a lot of us, very familiar with. We've read it a bunch of times. Um, so one reason it's familiar is that it's found in all four Gospels. You know, and not, that's, you can't say that about a lot of things in uh, the Gospels that they're found in all four. You know, the, the four different writers of the Gospels had different uh, things they wanted to emphasize as they wrote about Jesus' life. Uh, but all four of them put Palm Sunday in there. And Palm Sunday is also, of course, called the triumphal entry. That's what Palm Sunday is all about, is Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, the week before he died. Uh, so we can gather that it's a pretty important event that it was covered in all four Gospels. Um, you know, the most, the most challenging thing about teaching, you know, Palm Sunday is that I had to be really careful when I plagiarized Pastor Rich's message from last year that I didn't make it too obvious, you know. <laughs> I, need, I needed to change a couple things here and there, and, you know. He's been talking a lot about the ministry of repetition lately, hasn't he? Yes. Hasn't he? Yes. Hasn't he? <laughs> So I figured it's, it's fair game to just say what he said last year. You know, I, I did wait until after I had finished this to, like, look at and listen to his message from last year and see, you know, how, how they stacked up. <laughs> you know, did, I, did I say too many things he said? You know, and there was one analogy that we kind of had that was similar, but I wasn't, wasn't going to take that out, you know. So if one of you here or two of you have, like, minds like a steel trap and you're like, I heard that last year. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> you can chalk it up to great minds think alike if you want. But uh, we're mainly going to look at the account found in Matthew chapter 21. But I also have a couple of verses from Luke chapter 19 and one verse from Mark that adds some additional information. So let's start by reading Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11. If you could all turn there. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that as we study your holy word, that our hearts would be open to receive what you have for us. I thank you that we are free to gather in your name and that we have access to your word, that we all have Bibles and Bible apps and all the ways that we can read your word and study it. Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that from what I've prepared that the things that are from you would remain in our minds and our hearts, and that anything that's just mine, that you would just uh, let it be forgotten. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I was praying about what to share here about this event, the triumphal entry, I kept coming back to the different people who appear here in Matthew and the people who appear in Luke chapter 19. There are three groups and one person. The groups are... The two disciples, the multitude who gathered, in Luke we see the Pharisees, and then we have the one person, and that person, of course, is Jesus. And I think we can learn something from looking at each of these groups of people, and of course, from looking at Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the pair of disciples that Jesus sent out. Now, they're unnamed, so... It seems unlikely that these are two of the twelve apostles, but it's not impossible. We don't know for sure. But none of the four Gospels named them. Um, but they were two disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, of course. Jesus gave these followers a command. What was the command? Go to the village and take these donkeys that you will find there. It seems simple enough, right? And so you think about how those donkeys belong to a stranger. And that they had to go by themselves without Jesus there to back them up and say, hey, they can take the donkeys, I said so. You know? And yet despite the potential problems that could have, in theory, arisen from carrying out this command, these two disciples went with no questions asked. And they're quick Immediate obedience, it made me think in contrast to some of the times that 
Just Peter alone questioned Jesus when Jesus told him to do things or when Jesus taught himself, tried to teach him something. This week I was reading John chapter 13 where Jesus went to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter said to him, No, you shall never wash my feet. He said that to Jesus. Now he was no doubt thinking that by saying that he was honoring Jesus, right? He didn't want Jesus to humble himself to a lower position than Peter. But he also was disobeying because Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. So you don't argue with Jesus, you know? Jesus explained to him that unless he washed his feet, that Jesus, Peter would have no part with him. And then Peter wanted a whole bath. So he, he, turned, he turned that around pretty quickly. Another time was in Acts chapter 10. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter was uh, praying on a rooftop and God showed him a vision with a sheet full of different kinds of creatures, all creatures that Jews had been forbidden to eat, many of them. And he told him, Peter, kill and eat. But he answered, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then the Lord told him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So again, Peter needed to be straightened out. And that incidentally, good news, opened the way for us believers to eat bacon, Shrimp, lobster, lizards, if you're into that, you know. It's good news. <laughs> a lot of tasty things opened up to all of us that day. So I don't want to beat up on Peter, you know. Peter, obviously, great disciple, great uh, leader in the early church. He had some amazing things. We're studying Acts on Wednesday nights, and you just see some of the amazing things that Peter did and uh, that God used him for, and the things that he said, the, the sermons that he gave were just incredible. Um, but sometimes he needed a little more explaining before he would trust and obey what Jesus was telling him. But these two disciples, on the other hand, they go immediately to take the donkeys. Jesus commanded, and they obeyed. What do you think that tells us about their level of trust in Jesus? They trusted him completely. If he had said, if he said to do something, they would do it. If he said it would be okay to do it, they knew it would be okay. I think it also shows that they knew him as Lord and not just as a teacher. There were many people who called him teacher, right, as he walked around Israel in those days. But if someone who was just a teacher to them said, go there, take those donkeys, they would have no way of knowing for sure that it would work out and that they wouldn't find themselves in trouble for Grand Theft Borough. <laughs> you know, Exodus 22, 3 and 4 tells us the punishment for the theft of an animal. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. Now, we don't know the financial situation of these two disciples, Maybe they could have paid back double, basically the price of four donkeys for stealing two. Or maybe they would have been sold as slaves to pay for their debt, for their theft. Maybe they'd get in trouble with the Romans instead of with the Jews, and then their punishment would be even worse. In any case, they didn't seem to worry about that, though. And they certainly didn't say anything to suggest that they were worried about that. They simply trusted Jesus and obeyed. They showed that he was more than just a teacher or a rabbi to them. He was their Lord. Now, if Pastor Rich, my teacher, 
and someone I really do trust quite a lot, told me to go down the street and take a pickup truck out of somebody's driveway that I don't know. He said, we need to go pick up some things for the churchyard sale, and we need this guy's truck. I'm sorry, but I think I'd have a few questions. <laughs> I would say, whose truck is it? Are you sure they're okay with it? And didn't you just buy a giant van that we could use for this? <laughs> it's not that I don't trust you. It's just a very odd scenario, isn't it? <laughs> but if Jesus told me, if Jesus told me to go take the truck, even if it looked like this truck, I'd like to think that I'd listen and obey. I'd definitely like to think that Jesus would let the owner of that truck know I was coming. <laughs> And that, it, and that I, he wanted me, him to give it to me, you know? Taking a truck like that without divine protection is likely to get you shot, right? And that's where fear would come in. And like Peter, it would be tempting to ask a bunch of questions of Jesus, you know? Am I really going to take that guy's awesome truck? But we need to trust and obey when the command comes from Jesus himself. Now, is stealing being quite clearly against the Ten Commandments, how was it that Jesus could tell them to take the donkeys without breaking the law? Which Jesus said he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Well, first of all, it seems very likely that they returned the donkeys afterwards. They weren't stolen. They were borrowed. And uh, there are no further accounts of Jesus riding around on this donkey like he owned it afterwards. For the rest, I mean, he was only here for one more week after that. But uh, there's no more further accounts of the donkey, so it seems that the donkey was most likely returned. Now, secondly, Jesus, as God the Son, had a claim of ownership on those donkeys that superseded the people that had them tied up at their house. God owns everything. We're just stewards of the things that God gives us to have for while we have them. Uh, so really, Jesus is borrowing back his own donkeys that he allowed those people to have. Now, did these disciples reason that all out in the moment between Jesus telling them to go take them and them immediately obeying? I don't think they had time to think of all this stuff, but they did simply obey him, and they trusted that if Jesus said it was okay, then it would be okay. In Luke's account, we see that the owners did find them taking the donkeys and questioned them, as anyone would, if they found strangers untying their donkeys. Verses 32 and 34 of Luke 19 say, Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. So again, complete obedience to what Jesus told them to do. They didn't give a long explanation of what they needed the donkeys for. They didn't make up a story or promise to bring them back. They just told them what Jesus told them to say. The Lord needs it. And in Mark chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Their obedience to Jesus leads to success in their mission. No more questions asked. The owners let them go. Now, these two men are such examples for us. Sorry. Complete trust. Complete obedience. When we're called to do something, when we're commanded to do something by Jesus, we need to have the same trust and obedience in him. And we need to follow their example. As much as you know, our natural inclination is to fear or to doubt 
You know, we need to just obey Jesus and step out in faith. You know, we learn to obey Jesus because we trust him, don't we? We can trust him that what he says for us to do is for our own good. And then, like these two men, when Jesus says, go here, we'll, we'll go. And when Jesus says, do this, we'll do it. And when Jesus says, say that, we'll say it. May we learn to obey Jesus in the same way. Even when we're called to do something that we're afraid of or that we can't make sense of. Because of who he is. That's why we can obey him this way. Because he is our Lord. So the next group of people we're going to look at is the multitude. The crowd gathered to greet Jesus as he came riding into Jerusalem. Looking back at verses 8 and 9, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Who were the people in this crowd? Some of them would have been those who had been following Jesus for some time. Disciples like the two he sent to get the donkeys. There would be new believers there as well. Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And when people heard about that miracle, they traveled out to Bethany where Lazarus lived to see him and to see Jesus. And when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they believed in Jesus. So they were new believers because that had just happened very recently. And they would have been there too. In fact, that caused such a stir not only in Bethany but in Jerusalem that everybody in Jerusalem was talking about it And the Pharisees started plotting not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus, to shut him up. They didn't want a resurrected man walking around proving that Jesus was capable of such miracles. So many people had come to believe in Jesus because of that miracle, and they had had gathered there. And there were probably some people there who hadn't decided to follow Jesus yet, but they were there to see what was going on, the commotion. But they wouldn't have been the ones shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. There, there was not, that was not something that you would say to just anyone or say because everybody else was saying it. Now, the spreading of garments and tree branches each have a slightly different meaning, though both were meant to honor Jesus. One other place we see the spreading of garments in the Bible was when Jehu was anointed king of Israel by Elisha the prophet. And he was told to overthrow the wicked king Ahab. Jehu's officers spread their cloaks on the stairs before Jehu as a way of showing that they supported him as the new king. I had never made the connection between those two passages. So it's interesting to see that even back then, it spoke to royalty. Jehu was the new king. And that's exactly what Jesus would be crucified for, right? He would say on his cross, king of the Jews. Now the tree and palm branches where we get the name Palm Sunday from, according to David Guzik, were emblematic of victory and success. So between the cloaks and the branches, they were welcoming Jesus like a victorious king who had won a great battle. Jesus knew, though, that his battle and victory were still ahead of him. Now what about what the crowd shouted? Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. How do they all agree on this together ahead of time? 
this crowd of people. It's a little more complicated than Jesus, 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 isn't it? The reason they could all agree on it is because they're actually quoting Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. So by saying this, this psalm, Psalm 118, this portion of the psalm, they were proclaiming him as the Messiah. In that psalm, in the NIV, Hosanna is translated with its meaning, Lord, save us, while other versions have save now. And that's the literal meaning of Hosanna, though it is now and was then also an exclamation of praise. By putting this together, Hosanna, with the title, Son of David, and shouting out words from a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, we see clear evidence that the people shouting this believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They greeted him as a king, a victorious conqueror, and as the Messiah, and in all these things, they are completely correct. In Luke's account, we can see the reaction of the Pharisees to the crowd's praise of Jesus. Luke 19.39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. As we might have guessed, they weren't happy with this. Not with the praise of Jesus or the welcome that he was receiving, him being called the son of David, It infuriated them because they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was an imposter. Throughout the Gospels, we see that most of the Pharisees were completely unwilling to even consider the possibility that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Nicodemus, one Pharisee who was curious and wanted to know if Jesus could really be the Messiah, who had gone and met with Jesus away from his peers, tried to use reason with the rest of the Pharisees when they met together and was mocked. They said to him, Are you also from Galilee? As a way of insulting him, because they looked down on people from that area. They also mocked and excommunicated a man from the synagogue who was born blind and had been healed by Jesus. He tried to tell them that if Jesus was not from God, then he would not have been able to heal him. The blind beggar showed more spiritual insight than the leaders of the Jewish spiritual leaders of the time. And they threw him out of the synagogue for it. They decided from the beginning that Jesus was not the Messiah, and they ignored all the evidence that said he was. And they even tried to silence those who could talk about the miracles, like the blind man or Lazarus. So now as the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, they want Jesus to stop them because they had no ability to calm this crowd down themselves. We see Jesus' response in the next verse, Luke 19, 40. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Even if the crowd had stopped praising Jesus, the stones would praise him. In other words, there would be no stopping this proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, as this was the appointed time for that truth to be declared publicly. We don't see any further reaction from the Pharisees in this statement, though we are safe to assume they did not appreciate Jesus' answer. They went on that very week to carry out their plan to kill Jesus because they rejected him as Messiah rather than welcoming him as the crowd did. So we've looked at the obedience and trust of the disciples. We've looked at the praise of the crowd, and we've looked at the scorn of the Pharisees. I've, of course, saved the best for last, Jesus. The first thing that we see Jesus doing here is that he gave his command to the disciples. 
Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So one thing we can see from this is Jesus' omniscience. That he is all-knowing and all-seeing. He remained that way even when he was in a human body here on the earth. He knew where the donkeys would be, and they weren't just any donkeys. It was very specific, a mother and her colt. He also knew that the owners would allow the disciples to take the donkeys if they said, the Lord has need of them. Now, if someone came to my house and tried to take my stuff, or was in my driveway trying to take my car, and they said, the Lord has need of them, I'd say, well, the Lord didn't tell me that. (laughs) I think he would have told me. I'd be calling the cops. But God could have told them. God could have told the owners of those donkeys that they were to give those donkeys to whoever came and said that. God could have spoken to them in a vision or a dream and told them that. Sent an angel to speak to them ahead of time. We don't have an account of it, but God could have prepared them in advance. And we see many times that God did prepare people in those ways for these things. They also could have just been the most generous, trusting, laid-back, neighborly people that you ever met in your life. You know, oh, you want my donkeys? The Lord needs them? Okay, here you go. If that was the reason, Jesus knew that about them too. Because he was all-knowing, omniscient. Those people would let anybody take the shirts off their backs, if they knew them or not. It's clear that Jesus knew what was going to happen in advance. The next thing we see about Jesus in verses 4 and 5 This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God had given Zechariah these words over 500 years before. Pastor Rich talked about the fulfillment of this prophecy last year on Palm Sunday. So this is where it really got hard not to just copy what he said. What we see here about Jesus and we see it in other places as well, was that he deliberately fulfilled prophecies about himself. Now, someone, a skeptic, could say, well, the only reason that prophecy came true is because Jesus made it happen. As if that somehow invalidates the fulfillment of the prophecy. To that, I would say, well, of course he made it happen. How else would it come true? It's not like Jesus was going to wake up one morning on a donkey heading into Jerusalem. This particular prophecy required him to get a donkey, get on it, and ride into Jerusalem. And I don't think that because he played a part in carrying out that prophecy, that that makes that prophecy untrue or invalid. There are plenty of fulfilled prophecies, so many fulfilled prophecies, that Jesus could in no way, if he was just a man, have made happen on his own. You know, and we could spend weeks talking about all of them. But this particular one, he had to do something. He had to send the guys to get the donkey. He had to get on the donkey, and he had to ride into Jerusalem. Simple as that. That doesn't invalidate it. It just shows me that God is faithful to do everything he says he will, even down to the detail that he would come riding on a donkey's colt. If you want a more difficult prophecy to fulfill... You can check out all the math involved 
with Jesus arriving here on Palm Sunday, exactly 173,880 days after the order had been given to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls, as predicted in Daniel chapter 9. When you have to factor in 77s minus 17, account for leap years in the 360-day calendar. Look up Pastor Rich's sermon about that from last year, if you want to know more about that. What does the prophecy of Zechariah say about Jesus? That though he is the king, he comes gently riding on a donkey's colt. Why a donkey? Not a war horse or a chariot like the earthly kings of that day would use for their grand entrance? It was not an elephant, which certainly would have been impressive, and God could have arranged that. He was not carried into the city by angels, as he could have been. He came on a donkey. Not just a donkey, a borrowed donkey, a borrowed burrow. He's the king of kings, and he comes riding on a donkey. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about the statement, the Lord has need of them, that we see here. What a singular conjunction of words is here. The Lord and hath need. Jesus, without laying aside his sovereignty, had taken a nature full of needs. Yet being in need, he was still the Lord and could command his subjects and requisition their property. Jesus didn't even own a donkey. The Lord of the universe, as a man, didn't own much of anything, did he? He had no place to lay his head. He truly walked humbly among us. As God, he commanded the wind and the waves, but as a man, he needed to borrow a donkey. At one time, a donkey was a means of transportation for important people, even kings. But after Solomon's time, when he stockpiled horses and collected them like they were baseball cards, uh, it became more of the mode of transportation for poor people, and more to carry things than to ride on. Donkeys were a humble means of transportation by the time Jesus rode into Jerusalem on one. They were also ridden in times of peace, while horses were used for war. No one would want to ride a battle donkey. <laughs> Even if a donkey packs a mean kick. You know, the really weird thing is that while I was like, doing my image searches here, I found two pictures of U.S. Navy SEALs riding on donkeys with their assault rifles. It was crazy. <laughs> so in modern times, someone might want to ride a battle donkey. But then, no. It was an animal of peace then. This fits the description of Jesus as gentle. He did not come to conquer by force. One commentator had this to say, Therefore, for those with eyes to see, Jesus was not only proclaiming his Messiahship and his fulfillment of Scripture, but showing the kind of peace-loving approach he was now making to the city. He will likewise not conquer us by force. He comes gently and waits for us to declare that he is our king. He wants our surrender to him, but he will not force us to give it. Now, those in the, in the crowd expecting Jesus to overthrow Rome may have thought that a war horse would be a better choice. If he had led them in a charge against the Romans, they would have rushed to join the battle. But he did something better than to defeat Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. He came gently. He went to the cross willingly. Without resistance, he gave up his life. And then, in doing that, he conquered sin and death. So though he came hum humbly on a donkey, this triumphal entry to Jerusalem was different than how Jesus had traveled about at any point before this. In the past, he had avoided this kind of public proclamation. After he fed the 5,000 
They wanted to make him king, and he slipped away from them. What had changed? His time had come. The cross was just a few days away. So now he allowed the people to proclaim him openly as Messiah and King. He accepted their cries of Hosanna to the Son of David. So what does all this mean for us? From the two groups of people, we have examples to follow as believers, the first two. I'm going to mix it up, the order, the order here, and go with uh, the crowd first. From this group, we see the praise and adoration that we should give Jesus ourselves. For believers, every day should be a Palm Sunday, where we declare Him to be our King, right? We should worship and adore Him. If you've ever heard the prayer acronym of the four kinds of prayer, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication, Adoration comes first, but I think often we rush through it on our way to supplication. You know, God wants us to pray for our needs, but He also wants us to worship and adore Him. And I know that I'm guilty of that too. I need more praise, more shouting Hosanna to Jesus in my life. From His disciples, we see the obedience and trust that we should give Jesus if we call ourselves His disciples too. Obedience and trust go hand in hand. We can obey any command and calling that he puts on our lives if we trust him completely. And we know that wherever he sends us, whatever he sends us to do, and whatever he sends us to say, he will be with us. We just need to remember who our Lord and Master is and remember his faithfulness to us. Now from the Pharisees, we see a picture of those who have not accepted Jesus as Lord. And we see the prevailing attitude of the world around us that rejects Jesus. Now, it may be here that everyone in this room has accepted Jesus as their Savior. And if so, hallelujah. Praise God. But if any of you have not here today, or if you're watching online later, I can only warn you that you have the same enmity with God that the Pharisees did. Though you're not plotting to kill Jesus or speaking hateful things against him, or trying to discredit him, you stand with the Pharisees as those who have rejected Jesus, and you're separated from God by your sin. That problem is easy to solve. Easy for us. Not so easy for Jesus, who went to the cross for us. If you surrender to him, and you welcome him as your Lord and King, and you accept the sacrifice he made for you, when he gave his life to pay for your sins, you'll no longer be counted with the Pharisees as an enemy of God, but as one of his children with your sins washed away. Then you can remember that on Palm Sunday, you welcomed Jesus into your heart and shouted, Hosanna, save now, to him. Don't deny the truth any longer. Turn to him and receive all that he has for you. Like before, we'll end with looking at Jesus, our humble Savior, riding on a donkey, heading so soon to the cross to set us free. He endured it all for us. The beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the long walk on the road to Calvary, dragging the cross that he would be nailed to, the nails in his hands and feet, the spear in his side, the separation from the Father as he gave his last breath for us. He did all of that because he loves us so much. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Lord, we do just want to give you honor and praise this morning. 
You are worthy of so much more than we are able to give, but what we can give, we give to you, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. We pray that you would help us to live our lives glorifying you with our praise, our trust, and our obedience. And I do pray for any here who have never put their faith in you, never surrendered to you as their King, never cried out, save now, to you. If that's you and you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you can just pray right now with me. Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I need you to save me now. I pray that you would be my Lord and King and rescue me from sin and death. I give my life to trust and obey you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So thanks, everybody. Make sure you slap some palms on the way out.